Language is crucial to understanding societies. It's crucial to recognising the ecological, social, political and economic conditions in which we live. We use language to frame problems, formulate solutions, to negotiate and communicate political and economic pitfalls. Language is interaction that can accelerate action. But language is also performance, and performances can be used to distract from inaction, to avoid action, or postpone action, as much as to accelerate it. And language is what we focus on in this second series of our Language and Power podcast. So hello again, Tom. Hello again, Michael. How are you doing? So we're, this is part two. Last time we talked about Roman Abramovich and his represent, the representation of Roman Abramovich, the erstwhile owner of Chelsea Football Club in, uh, I think I'm right in saying erstwhile. Do you think uh, our podcast had anything to do with bringing him down, Michael? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Do you? I'd, I'd like to think so. <laughs> but we saw this, we've got part two on the Glazers. So the Glazer brothers um, acquired the football club Manchester United several years ago, well, two, two, 2005. And no doubt no, Glazer Senior acquired Man United and then passed it on to his children. That's right, of course. Yes, yeah, yeah. I'd forgotten about that, yeah. So the, the family who are citizens of the United States. And so we've got a, a report from the same newspaper, the Daily Mirror. So last week we looked at a Daily Mirror report which was which was describing Roman Abramovich and his downfall, and this week we're looking at the same newspaper, an article from twenty fourth of April, twenty twenty one. Shall I? I'll read out the, the 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 headline, and then we can go from there. So Manchester United owners the Glazers set four billion pound asking price to sell club amid fan protests. The subtitle says exclusive. The Glazers are under fire again following their shady dealings in the collapsed European Super League, but will not be forced out of Old Trafford for less than a huge fortune. So, go on, Tom. Interesting, isn't it? There's so much in there. I mean, that, that sets up some nice things. I think there's a lot more to talk about as well beyond what's actually in the papers as well. The whole idea of, you know, what it means to be a football supporter, not just in terms of, you know, non-UK or non-English owners, but the whole identity work that's involved in being a football fan. And I, what I love about the headline straight away, you've got Man United owners uh, and then amid fan protests. And there's a straight, you've got this distinction between the owners on the one hand and the fans. It's like, you know, the bosses against the workers almost. And that four billion scare quote there. So in a way, you know, from the beginning, it, this is set up as a, a battle between the rich. They'll notice that they're never referred to as oligarchs, which is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and at the same time, the fans and their shady dealings. Okay, straight away, there's a bit of... I'm not quite sure what way they were shady. They were behind closed doors, I think, for a long time. And a huge fortune as well. Not just, you know, it's not just for it's now a huge fortune. So this idea that... The, man, the owners are not interested in the game. They're not interested in the fans. All they're interested in is, is profits. And for, for those of you who are not football fans, the European Super League was, well, it, it's still ongoing, but it was an attempt of the by the richest clubs in Europe, including Man United and uh, 
I think Chelsea. in England, Chelsea, Arsenal and Spurs, I think, to, were to be part of the European Super League. And it was to be a, a league without relegation. It was just to be the same teams playing each other for huge amounts of money, not involving the everyday the other teams in, in, their, in their local national leagues, but just uh, an exclusive club of the rich and elite football teams playing with no chance of being relegated. So straight away, that European Super League has been set up there. This is, was once again a battle between the owners and the fans because it was largely protests from the fans primarily and then secondarily by a lot of the players that led to these plans. Uh, I think six of the eight teams pulled out, I think, or something like that. I've had to check my facts. After like huge that. protests, wasn't it? And, and the, um, yeah. the interesting, one of the interesting things about that was that it wasn't, I don't think ever, you might be able to correct me, I don't think it was it was slightly framed as being a way of the top European clubs so that your your quality of football would increase. But actually, it was really about those rich clubs becoming richer uh, and leaving their national leagues to, to form a, a, a um, European Super League. That's right. They get lots of money, but they said it was for the good of the game, I think. Good of the game. Bizarrely, they were talking about the increased costs in the game, which is all to do with the amount of money they're all paying for players and the wages they're paying as well so again setting up the fans against the rich players in this case but it was a financial disaster of their own making which they use as an excuse to, to to create even more money for themselves yeah 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 incredibly incredibly interesting and it, just to sort of just to kind of bring this back to to our ideas of discourse and power this is you know ownership is about power it's about fan power as you've said in this in this in the headline, an interesting thing straight away in terms of the discursive representation of these two people. If we talk, if we think back to last week when we were talking about Abramovich, you picked it up. He was labelled an oligarch in that article, and whereas even here, there's clearly a negative representation or a negative evaluation of the Glazers because they're being called, shown as being involved in shady dealings. And as we, as we go through the article, we'll see more negative evaluations, but even so they're not labeled oligarch. So there's a difference in the discursive representation of this set of owners versus the owner of Chelsea football club, Roman Abramovich. So we may, may want to talk about that, but what's not questioned in either of the articles either the, the article that we looked at last week or this early headline and, and subheading, there's no indication, no questioning that billionaires ought to be able to own football clubs. Do you want to elaborate on that, Michael? Sermon? Oh, yeah, okay. So, so, so the question is, why, why, why ought it to be that an individual owns a football club rather than the fans? And maybe we'll talk, come on to that later. And, and neither neither of the articles are questioning this. No, no, yeah, questioning. There's, there's no question that I mean, it's taken for granted that billionaires own football clubs. Right. <laughs> okay. So, let, well, let, let's 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 start. Let, let's start. Maybe I'm going. Maybe I'm kind of going off on the uh, on. No, okay. So, so it's what you're saying. So you're saying that there's no question with the very the principle. That the principle, yeah. Football clubs can be owned by very very wealthy people. Yeah, but it just depends on how well they respect the traditions of the club, and whether they are maybe from the UK rather than abroad. Yeah. Uh, so it's not the question of disassociating clubs from money, but is it tainted money more or less? 
because it's not, mm. you know. Yeah, yeah. Yes, something like that. So, yeah, okay. Well, I mean, let, let's let's stick with this 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 idea of the oligarch first. What what what? Why would why would Abramovich be labelled an oligarch, whereas the Glazers, who also are billionaires and also own a football club, are not labelled oligarch? I think it's not just bringing in it's a, a nationalist thing, but bringing in different stereotypes which are easy, you know, again, we talked previously about members' resources, the stereotypes that are out there that are easy to bring in. They don't need much justification because people will just take them at face value because they're being used all the time. So the idea that the Russian super wealthy are caught up with the Kremlin and therefore not good for football is a very easy idea to draw on, whereas that doesn't seem to work, you know, for the, for the states. Glazers are supporters of Trump, as has been pointed out to me by my colleague Joe O'Grady, but it never seems to mm -hmm. be, as you say, it's more to do with just unfettered capitalism and profit making when when, when the Americans are being criticized. Yeah, yeah. Let shall I read out the next the, the opening of the the article itself. The Glazers want a staggering four billion pounds to walk away from Manchester United. That's the price United's American owners have slapped on the club which they bought in 2005 for 790 million. And it's the figure the Florida-based family believe would have been achieved if the doomed European Super League project would have gone ahead. So this is, this is almost like they're asking for compensation for, for, the, for the competition never having gone ahead. It, it's good, isn't it? So again, it's projecting these manipulating and very, I think they're legalistic. And profiteering is, you know, when, one of the images when it's foreigners particularly, but any of the non-fans involved in running the club, when it's Americans, you get this idea that they're, they're, they're intensely legal, they're only interested in the business aspects and the money, and so you highlight that all the time. But when it's, when it's the Russian owners, it's this mysterious word oligarch, whatever that means. But I think it, it's just, I don't actually know if the two if there's a significant difference between the two myths, other than that, you know, that they're very, they're very easy, they're both very easy to draw on mm. and are used to discredit the owners without much work. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. It's very, very, a very clear resource that can be drawn on. If we go into the next sentence, I mean, throughout their unpopular 16 year ownership, the Glazers have always insisted they are in United for the long haul have shown no appetite to sell the club instead taking yearly dividends amounting to millions while the debts stay high so yeah this is all about the money isn't it it's not there's nothing there uh, so far about directly talking about the fans nothing actually even talking directly about the performance of the team as a you know as a football club as previously being very successful and having some success in this period but but uh, perhaps not so much as previously. No, I think you're, you're right to say that the whole, the whole tone of the article here is sort of suggesting it's okay for these amounts of money to be sloshing about in the game. But, you know, because bu buying the Glazers out is presented as a good thing, but of course it will take a, a huge amount of money to do that and it will still be very rich people in charge of, of the club. So I think you're right in saying that it doesn't question 
you know, the, the association between football and, and huge sums of money, and it just sort of questions it when it suits the newspapers to do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm really interested. I am really interested in this idea of when did football clubs become the, the, the types of items that could be considered to be commodities that can be bought and sold by people who have enough money for them? And I may be going off on a completely different tangent here, but to me, the idea of a club is something which people come together in order to enjoy together as a, you know, as a group of people and, and not something, not, not a commodity to, uh, to buy and sell. You know, I know this is a long lost battle. <laughs> it's long, long established in, in England, at least that, that people do buy and sell football clubs, just as they buy and sell footballers contracts. So there's a lot of commer heavy commercialization, a lot of money in there. Yeah. But you know, no, that, that, that's it. I mean, I, I, I've never, I've never seen it questioned and, and you know, there, there is this, what we're seeing here is, is a distaste for the, the amount, you know, the, the amount of money is, it's, it's not the, f what's bothering the newspaper here is not that these people can buy and sell a club or come in and go out and, and whatever, take profits, but that it just seems a little bit too much. Is that your reading as as well? I think so. Yeah, it's it's too it's too much, and it's it's not, and it's leaving the country. You know, they're 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 you know taking the yeah. profits. They're not putting it back into the football. I think it's one of the things. Yeah. They're, they're bad owners as yeah. opposed to you know, but it's not really out the potential of them being good owners. Good one of whom, of course, was very famously uh, Uncle Jack at Blackburn again, who was you know did buy the club and did put a lot of money in, but was considered a good owner. Again, but he was one of the first uh, to put a lot of private money, as it were, in, into a football club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, the, so there's a different. So, right. No, I wonder why that is. I wonder if there's something here, as you suggested, that for, foreign owners versus citizens of the of the of Brit British citizens. I guess so I wonder if this. So I I can't really see anything. I mean, they they do mention American. Um, United's American owners, Florida based. So there's lots of hints, you know, expression of the fact that they're not from Britain, but that's yeah. not necessarily contrasted with, with anyone else. Uh, no, it's not, but it's just, uh, that's just sort of shown up there. But there is a contrast. I mean, they also mentioned the fact they own the NFL, the American National Football League, as in American football, Tampa yeah. Bay Buccaneers, again, sort of suggesting they're from a different tradition. They haven't got the interests of the game at the heart. They don't really know about our type of football. Yeah. They're just accruing football teams. Whereas Uncle Jack, of course, was actually a real supporter. Yes, he was a true. Blackburn supporter true. who put his millions in because he was a supporter, which I, and lost money as far as I'm aware. So I suppose that's a crucial difference. Are they, as long as the owners are supporters, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, interesting in the next line, um, but City investors believe a bid close to their four billion asking price would tempt brothers Joel and Avram, who effectively run the club, to relinquish control. So we've got City investors now commenting on the ownership of of, of football clubs, or you know they're not named here, but there's a there's a clear representation of City investors having knowledge, interest and even perhaps influence on, on understanding what's going on with this, with this bid. So the experts here, and, and, and this is, again, this is in the sports page, isn't it? It's in the football. It's exactly. And we're not talking about managers, football experts and so on. We're talking about city investors. 
So I think that, I think that's interesting as well, that we've an unnamed group of people, you know, kind of having an opinion, being able to express an opinion here on, on what's going on. Yeah, I wonder what that's, I'm not sure what that lie. Yes, but the, what's the story? What's the narrative that's been that's been built up? That there are good guys waiting in the wings, maybe waiting to save the club, but at the same time, there's you know the guys relinquishing control and walking away. So that's the way it is. Uh, yeah. So it's the idea that there's a possibility of salvation in the wings, and as you say, from just another commercial company. I mean. I, I, and the, the, this whole, as you say, this tension, this ambiguity between what's good for the game and the money, is that the paper then goes on to say as well, you know, it talks about the German-based technology company who paid 300 to 235 million for the shirt deal previously. It talks about deals like this as huge deals like that, which gave United a global appeal with a worldwide fan base running into millions. So suddenly this idea that, you know, this money's good because it creates this worldwide fan base and this appeal of millions. So this idea of expansionism is still considered good. It doesn't need to be just 65,000 people in Old Trafford anymore or 10 million people watching matches a day. It's, 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 this, it's always this idea that, that we find in so many different discourses, very capitalist discourse, that growth is good. Yeah. So just so some bad guys involved in it. Yeah, yeah. Now, yeah, that that's really interesting. Is this so? You 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 can you, you can comment on this from your you, you know your particular perspective. I, I get, are we allowed to say that you're a fan of Manchester United? You can say I'm a fan <laughs> of Manchester United, of course. So, as a fan of Manchester United, you're, you're a fan of the team, the club. Yeah. You know, so it's in its wider interest. Are you a fan of it of, of a business? Are you being asked and positioned here as being a fan of the business? If United makes a huge profit is that something that you, you you celebrate or is it or is that something that's aside from your f fan it, it's a really good question is it because you see this huge ambiguity i mean you saw for example well we heard a lot of the chelsea fans chanting roman abramovich's name recently because you know the money that he brought to chelsea gave them two decades of unparalleled success so they're not so much worried about where the money came from at the same time i think most football fans realize that football costs so much now even though this is a you know a problem of football's own making you cannot get really good players without billions of pounds behind you and so the club will falter and so the fans are almost forced into seeing the creation of more money in this this ever on, upward onward growth as essential just to just to stand still and again i think so very um, ambivalent yeah I, I get this kick from seeing United being a rich club in a way, even though I don't like the idea, because I know it means that we can carry out, we've got a chance to buy good players and be good again, which would be really, really nice. So suppose we're, we're sucked up in this idea, and this is a real capitalist idea. It's, it's a total capitalist underlying idea that you've got to be part of that system. You've got to be that. You've got to have a ticket to win the lottery. You, you know, the, the, this is the money. And even if you find it distasteful, it's the only thing you can do. There is no alternative in, in the words of a famous lady, that you have to be part of this big money stakes or else you'll be left behind and there'll be no more football. So you can wistfully think about the good old days, but it's it's really unrealistic. So we're caught up in this 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 whole madness. Yeah, yeah. Hey, the, the line that, that it goes on to say after the one you've just 
Jesus quoted there. It's, it's, it's huge. You know, maybe you said this. It's huge deals that like that which give United a global appeal. Did you did you read that one out? No, I just you, you, you've, you've said that one. That, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's yeah. It, do you like being? <laughs> I told this to be a kind of interrogation of you, but do you like being one of a worldwide fan base of millions? Or well, this is where my age is useful because you know. Whenever you, someone finds out you're a Man United fan, you're accused of being a glory hunter and people say, you're not from Manchester. I think this just doesn't work anymore now that the, the worldwide base is the standard for all clubs. But I always have to point out, I did support Man United and I was a Man United supporter when we got relegated into what was Division 2 at the time. So I was there in the bad old days as well as the good old days because... Uh, we've got there's this distinction you've got to make in football in terms you didn't just join on lately you've been there you've put in the hard hard miles uh, and you you can then enjoy the glory if you've done the hard work but you can't you mustn't be seen as a glory hunter so again it was part part being part of an older fan base is good I quite like the you know seeing thumbs well you know it depends I do get very annoyed for example if I see you know I go abroad and I see Man United or Man City or any shirts instead of people supporting their local team or where I'm from at a much different level in South Lanarkshire where the teams here Motherwell their North Lanarkshire and Hamilton South Lanarkshire you never see those shirts with kids wearing those shirts in the town it's always Celtic or Rangers shirts and there is something a bit sad about the fact that people support the big teams with the money instead of the local teams. And I think this has been played out here. We're wandering away from language and power because it's football and that's a great topic. But we just to bring it back to that, the fans who have split are brought up. Uh, just towards the end, it talks about the last paragraphs. It's been reported the ESL, the European Super League, would have been the start of an exit strategy for the Glazers who are despised by a significant number of real United supporters, and here we have it. Yeah. As you're saying, you've got the real supporters, even though it's in scare quotes, and then the, uh, the Johnny-come-latelys, the glory hunters, whatever. They've always been against the radio Americans, who also own NFL team Tampa Bay Buccaneers, have leveraged the debt and refused to engage with the United fan base. So now we've got the real fans against the other fans. And in 2010, they mobilised a green and gold campaign to try and remove the family. Green and gold being the colours that Manchester United wore, when they were started as Newton Heath way back in the day. And so having a green and gold campaign, and, and there was a split off from Man United team that wore green and gold in protest to all the big money and the commercialization of the game. And so this, this reference to green and gold, this flag, if you like, is sort of a campaign to go back to the grassroots side of the game and just to enjoy football on a Saturday afternoon, Saturday at three o'clock, hopefully, like it was before television. And so there's, there's a lot going on in this article that sort of it's got sympathy for the nostalgia boys. Mm. But as you say, they're just sort of they're in there and they're part of the story, but there's no real questioning of the fact that more and more money and expanding the worldwide fan base, etc., is, is is a good thing. And it's all part of this expansionist discourse that we're so familiar with in the university, in trade, in everything really. Yes, it, it's even when they're talking about this, these real fans here, it, there's, there's nothing, it's not clear what the real fans want apart from being rid of the glazers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this whole story is framed not as a, a question of what, 
why was it allowed that some people who were who the fans don't like the Glazer brothers uh, Glazer family sorry uh, can come in and do things that they don't like it's not questioning that system which allows that but it's just saying well no these particular ones are the, are the, are the bad ones and we want some better ones to come in and that's I I think that's pretty fascinating that the the discourse doesn't it isn't isn't able to open up that line of inquiry I don't know if the mirror would ever want to but there are alternative views yeah that, I think that's and for those who you know if we're sounding very pessimistic here and fed up with the commercialization of the game even though it means I can watch it on the telly without having to trace to different places there's there's a lovely article or a little video shoot from the BBC from the 17th of March, St. Patrick's Day uh, this year, and it's about Bohemian FC, the club with Bob Marley on the shirt and working class values at heart. So straight away, we see that this is interesting. It, there's an automatic contrast there. It's not stated. It doesn't need to be. If you're pointing out that this club has got working class values at heart in the headline, it's suggesting that this is something remarkable and unusual, and therefore it, it's implicitly setting up the contrast with every other football club. Now, I did, I, I, we'll, we'll put up the link for it, but there are just some really interesting quotes that stand in stark contrast to what we've been saying about most football and its globalisation. And it talks about the club being the community. We are the community. We're not distinct from the community. It's not just the fan base and the players they're the same thing. There's also a lovely bit where they, they, the, the, whoever runs the club, I don't want to call them owners now, we've stigmatised that word, whoever runs the club, runs buses to centres where asylum seekers in Ireland are kept. And it brings these asylum seekers to see the games. And they it says, you know, and they've got a wonderful interview where the guy says, this is my family. So it's so counter to the globalisation in terms of increasing capital and everything like that. There's this weird idea of globalization being it's multicultural and multi-ethnic. It emphasizes the fact that they're in the most ethnically diverse area of Dublin and that it gets that support. It's got a big bit of graffiti or maybe professional graffiti saying refugees welcome. Or one of the guys speaking says, we are the refugees of the world, by which he means the Irish. Famously, you know, a population of 4 million went down to 2 million at the time of the, the, the great starvation. And Ireland is a refugee nation, so to welcome refugees back is, is a very clever twist on what it means to be global, which I think is just such a lovely counterpoint to, to the Glazers, Chelsea, and all these things. Yeah, it's, it is. In the, in the description, they call it, there's a, a quote, they're 100% fan-owned since its creation in 1890. And, and that's, you know, I think that's an interesting, an interesting contrast to, to what we've been seeing it is they build a very different sense of community don't they and and, and it's interesting they, they talk about not getting rid of racism in the world and saying i don't think that's possible he says we're just one very small pebble but it does talk about start with your radius not the world mm. and the idea that you know to actually change can be started locally let's concentrate on the local we can't solve all issues again it's another contrast to these big globalizing discourses, the idea that let's just work at our, our own level. It's something that in my own work on discourse analysis that I'm interested in. You get a lot of work that talks about, you know, the criticize of the world order, for example, in various ways, or, you know, sexism in the newspapers in big ways. 
it's very easy to, to rail against that, but it, it's very hard to change that. I, I think this idea that, yeah, we think of global issues, but we work about how they're manifested in our own. I always get annoyed when people say that. Wait a minute. I correct that. We think about how they're manifest in our own communities and in our own areas, and we try and fix the way locally. We're, you know, shooting at global targets is impossible. We should concentrate you know, the old adage, think globally, act locally. Mm. And so there's a whole lovely counter alternative globalization localization story going on here yeah yeah and actually i mean just there's all i mean we've sort of gone to this one for for bohemians in ireland but actually there was a, a breakaway manchester united uh, team wasn't there and uh, they wore green and gold yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, so so it's it's not you know we're not trying to ignore that either other manchester united fans who might be uh, annoyed that we've we have ignored that but there, there are there are these um other football these football clubs which are not in that certainly not so invested in that global system of football which try and go for these fan-owned and more community-based orientation you know in lots of different places but one of the things that i noticed about this in this video is that they talk very much about this club filling a place in the community that was taken out from by, by people's jobs being no longer available. So they talked yeah. about people, people on living on streets, getting a job at Guinness. They talk specifically about getting a job. People would get job, jobs at the Guinness factory, making barrels, and they would stay, keep staying that job for all of their life. And so you would get families of multiple generations living on the same street, families living together side by side for generations and generations and having a sense of community and, and you know you can't be nostalgic for things that don't exist or you, you mean don't not trying to be nostalgic for, for that kind of thing because i'm sure there was lots of problems in that situation also but what this club is, is claims to do is is to say well we're trying to fill that gap which is no longer there taken away from the community by by global capitalism jobs being not for life anymore, people having to move on, move away, and all the rest of it, and provide well, Definitely, it is, and that's the identity that, that, that it's, a, it's a, the woman speaking there, isn't it? And she talks yeah. about this, and she's creating this identity of the club is, is the remnant of this working class culture. And she does refer, I think, to the problems that people had, but the club was your way of escaping those problems anywhere, yes. you know, it's your relief. And now it remains, and, and yeah. the rest of that yeah. working class culture is gone. Yeah. So yeah. she creates a very good myth for the club there, which is important. Yeah. Yeah, in discourse yeah, analysis. Yeah. No, it's really interesting, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. And as you say, very much counter to the, the forces of capital, global capitalist forces that removed local industries. So yeah. there's a clear linkage there, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 there's a bigger issue. I mean, I don't know if you want to say anything more on that, Tom, but this, this issue of when does a cultural experience item, shared experience become a commodity? And, it, you know, the talking about this club in Ireland being a place to escape from the rigors of everyday working life. That's the same for, for football clubs across the world, isn't it? Yeah. One of the things I think sometimes you get even the big clubs who are maybe a little bit guilty are still try and put themselves forward as working class clubs in the things with maybe the more successful teams who had all the money. And I'm thinking particularly when we talk about that, that break, that European Super League that didn't happen, 
one of the teams that was involved was my son's team again, Atletico Madrid, Atletico de Madrid, who backed down, well, one of the quickest teams to back down when they saw it wasn't going to be very popular. But they've always been by far the less successful of the Madrid teams, but they promote themselves instead as, as the workers' team. And Real Madrid was Franco's team, which is a very, very powerful myth in Spain that these were the elite guys who had all the money and all the prestige poured into them by the state. This time, interestingly, by not by an oligarch from Russia, not by wealthy Americans, but by a fascist dictator. Football being used to create identities beyond football, yeah. which very much, yeah. of course, is being... But, but the bohemian people are talking about, which is, in a way, what the Glazers and the Abramovitches have taken away. It, it's about football success and it's about money. It's not about any other bigger sense of identity, apart from being a global brand, whereas bohemians clearly are. Leeds, Millwall, Atletico all, all do this as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's 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 fascinating, really, really is. And one of the interesting things that the, the same the same lady who was talking about the the Coopers at the Guinness factory and and, and the fact that they had lost their jobs, everything had changed, and what was left was just the football teams. But interesting, she also makes the point about what's disappeared and what's left in identity. She says. I don't know how many of these guys go to church on a Sunday morning, but I think maybe this place at three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon is their church. How more, much more of an identity can you get than that? Yeah, no, that's a good one. Yep. <laughs> Great. So we've moved through from Bramovich to the Glazers to a, a fan-owned club in Dublin. So yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah, really fascinating. I think, you know, this this discussion of of the discourse being used to to create identities and contrast identities is really really interesting. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Michael. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, everyone. Thank you. Enjoy your football over the weekend. <laughs> yes, indeed. Right. See you again next time. Cheers, Michael. Um, <laughs>